Hi, everybody. Welcome to Convinced, a podcast about belief and religious experience. You are entering into a series of episodes that I have created to present the results of a student research project that I've been working on over the summer. I started this project wanting to understand the internal sense of conviction that people feel in response to their religious beliefs and experiences. I wanted to know how people could make decisions, big decisions, in their lives based on something so intangible and mysterious as God. I wanted to know how people reasoned with their beliefs and with their faith. So to find some answers, I decided to talk to some real people about how they have been able to make decisions based on their faith experiences. I focused on Christian ministers in my area to narrow the pool of participants because of my own familiarity with Christianity, and I knew that ministers would have stories to tell. I assumed that most ministers would have reasons for entering the field that are based on religious experiences, and that I could get a glimpse into how they reasoned about their experiences of God by asking about their quote-unquote call to ministry. Seventeen church leaders agreed to speak with me, the majority coming from Baptist, United, Wesleyan, and Anglican backgrounds. I asked questions such as, how did you become involved in ministry? What were the most significant factors that led you there? How have experiences of God influenced your decision to work in the church both then and now? What sustains you as a minister? It was really fun to talk with all of them, and I'd like to thank them again for agreeing to participate in this study. I started reading philosophy and listening to podcasts about philosophy and religion after the interview process had begun. One text in particular stood out to me as a valuable reference for understanding the ways that we reason about religious experiences. You guessed it, I'm talking about William James, The Varieties of Religious Experience. William James was a psychologist slash philosopher from the second half of the 1800s. The book is a documentation of a series of lectures that he gave at the University of Edinburgh in 1901-1902. So, it is a little dated in terms of its use of masculine language, as in using men instead of humans, and scientific trends of the day, like he mentions mind cure a lot, which has kind of morphed into the mindfulness craze that we see today. But I think he does a really good job of discussing the difficulties of studying religious experiences, and he offers a useful framework. He's trying to understand why and how people have these experiences, and he offers a lot of examples of the thought process or internal state that people describe as they attempt to understand these significant experiences. He talks about the kinds of people who have these experiences and describes the ways they might see the world, and he also discusses how science is not fit as a measure of religion. One of his main conclusions is basically that religion is useful for people to be able to cope with life, and that, quote, God is real since he produces real effects, end quote. I have decided to make use of James in this project because so many of his examples and discussions matched what I was noticing in my own interviews. So, I've read some philosophy, I've talked to some people, listened to podcasts, and I've done a lot of thinking. And I'm going to do my best to take us through some of the trends and ways of thinking that I found to be helpful. I'll probably make some bad jokes or references that like nobody will get except for people who know me really well. But you know, please bear with me. I think there's a lot of value in taking the time to think about the ways that we think about different aspects of our lives 
And if you're listening to this, you likely have some connection to religion, and more specifically, to Christianity. Whether you like it or not, religion is part of human living, and it seems to me that we often treat it with harsh judgment and prejudice. And I mean, that's probably for good reason, because of, like, religious zealotism and fanaticism that culminates in and attempts to justify violence, such as the Crusades or in the Inquisition or whatever. I know that I'm going to have quite a wide range of people listening to this, and I'm hoping to be able to navigate the various belief systems as best that I can. Through this project, I'm trying to understand these structures of belief that exist within us, different though they may be, and how they work in our reasoning and understanding of the world. I have attempted to look at my interviewees and at my own framework with curiosity, noticing the trends and finding connections. I'm questioning, looking for gaps and for the mechanisms we use to make sense of things. However, at the same time, I want to respect the wonder and mystery of life and the human mind by saying that I don't claim to understand everything completely, I'm just offering another lens to look through. But going through this adventure has been helpful for me, and my hope is that you too, if you are interested in listening, will glean something useful from this project. Perhaps a tool for thinking through your own ideas, an inspiring story, or a new question to play with. And fortunately for us all, I don't have to do all of the talking here. You'll get to hear from several of my participants as well. So, let's take a deep breath. Without further ado, here we go. I'd invite you to close your eyes and imagine the following. Consider what you would see as you opened your eyes for the very first time. At first glance, all is chaos. The lines are fuzzy. There is little to no distinction between different objects. Without form, all is blurry, and everything is essentially as one. From this place of darkness, of unknowing, you slowly begin to see forms to distinguish between objects by the patterns that you see. First, you notice the pattern of day and night, an ongoing cycle with characteristic stages. Then you learn that the earth has areas with different features. You are able to know what makes the ocean different from the land. And animals, you learn to differentiate between species, the kinds that fly versus those that walk, and eventually between particular creatures and species. You give names to all of these things, learning to give utterances as representations of ideas and objects and entering into communication with other language speakers. As you grow and discover your own abilities for sensing the world that surrounds you, you also learn to understand yourself, feeling often set apart with your own internal world and developing habits that allow you to function and interact with your surroundings. I tell this story in an effort to understand how we learn to see the world. I like this idea that our whole lives, we are learning and perfecting our ways of making sense of this chaos around and within us. This story itself is a way of describing what might have been to make sense of the now, and I tell it to point out that we could have learned to see the world differently. The lines and boundaries that we use seem obvious and normal, 
But maybe that's just because that's how we're accustomed to understanding the world. Although the processing of stimuli is primarily an internal activity, we cannot overlook the deep influence of culture and context to this process. It seems to me that a lot of our sense of what is okay and normal comes from our upbringing and past experience. I watched my niece growing up. She just recently turned one. And she is so trusting of her caretakers for food and safety and comfort. And she has no reason to mistrust us yet because, you know, nothing has gone wrong. She's learning from us that particular words refer to particular objects, learning to associate the sounds or gestures with meanings. As adults, I don't think we're that different. We use the frameworks or ways of coping with the chaos that we have um, until they cause problems or don't match our experience. It's kind of like the whole paradigm shift idea that we learn about from a philosopher of science, Thomas Kuhn. Now, I haven't done a lot of philosophy of science, but from what I understand, his theory tries to make sense of trends of changes that we see in the history of science. Basically, he suggests that scientific fields will go between phases of normalcy and revolution as the theories in the discipline develop and are tested. In its normal resting stage, there are accepted boundaries of the study. It's like a puzzle that's been laid out with an assumed solution and rules to adhere to, and there's an accumulation of puzzle solutions as people play with it over time. At some point, however, something gives way, or there's a gap, that the rules can't account for, and essentially, the people playing the game have stumbled upon a way to break it. And this is when the idea of a paradigm shift comes in. So those who see the problem question the rules they have trusted thus far, and they have to find a new way to account for the inconsistency. A new disciplinary matrix, as they say, starts to take hold when more and more people within the discipline accept the usefulness of the new and improved model of understanding. The new game or puzzle, as laid out by the new rules, addresses the old inconsistency and seems like progress, and it may be. But it is essentially a response to something prior. It is the result of a missing piece from the last puzzle, but it will leave other gaps in the process. So the classic example is the shift to heliocentrism, the idea that the Earth resolves around the Sun and not vice versa. Something about the old model or geocentrism didn't line up with the evidence that they saw in reality, and the theory had inconsistencies that could not be explained within itself. So this framework no longer did the thing that it used to do, and people were no longer satisfied with it, so they found a new theory that could solve their issues. Or another example. Let's say that when I grew up, I was taught that when I lost a tooth, if I put it under my pillow when I slept, a tooth fairy would come into my room and replace the tooth with money. Having trust in my parents, as most kids do, and having experienced this phenomenon once or twice, I would have no reason to doubt its validity. The theory matched the experienced reality. But then, let's say, one night, with my freshly lost tooth carefully placed as I'm hugging my dad goodnight, I notice that his arm has gone under my pillow in an unusual manner, almost as though he is doing the old switcheroo. I say nothing, but once he has gone, my curiosity urges me to investigate. I carefully lift my pillow and see that the tooth has been replaced with a few coins, 
the wheels turn in my head and I make a connection and I confront my father the next day. Now this is all hypothetically, of course. So I'm sure there were other hints that signaled to me that the tooth fairy story might not be an accurate depiction of what happens to teeth under pillows. And these hints may have opened my eyes to notice my dad's peculiar behavior that night. But all in all, I found evidence that pointed to a flaw in the previous framework or model that I had used to understand the tooth fairy phenomenon. Kuhn is talking about larger shifts in thinking than just a personal change in belief, but I think that his theory does well to highlight the process or scrutiny that our frameworks go through as we take in more experiences. We do take a lot of our frameworks for granted in that we use the schemas or patterns that we know to be characteristic of different things to fill in the gaps. And this is because we are cognitive misers, as they say in psychology, and we don't like to do a lot of work with our brains. But every so often, an accumulation of experiences counts as evidence against a framework, and then things start to shift within. I would now like to introduce you to our first interviewee, one who had a conversion experience. Danny grew up going to church every so often, but he recalls that he had not decided to be a Christian. That little Gideon's Bible had what they called the sinner's prayer in the back, and I remember filling that in and then erasing it out, because I'm like, no, I, that's just not, I don't want to. After high school, Danny was experimenting with drugs and with drinking. Despite trying to restart his life a few times to get away from all the drugs and everything, he could not seem to get his life together on his own. Eventually, he moved back to his home and decided to surround himself with the kinds of people he knew would not be involved with the drugs. So, Christians. I, I had no interest in spiritual things. Um, Christianity to me was foolish. Um, and uh, so that was kind of my attitude. Going to church, I needed to get some different friends. I knew church was good people. Um, I thought maybe I could cause some arguments with the Bible thumpers. Maybe there'd be some nice girls that I could meet. Just watching their lives, seeing how they were different than the so-called friends that I had just left and, and spent a lot of time with. Um, it made me kind of think and wonder, okay, what, what, what's the difference? Why are they like this? Danny began to realize that his ways of coping with the world and understanding the world weren't working for him. And there was something different and perhaps attractive about these religious people. He asked a girl from this group, who is now his wife, if they could date. And she in turn asked if he was a Christian. I had been asked that question in the past and been dishonest in order to avoid spiritual conversations. At this point, I was honest. I said, no, I'm not. By your definition, I'm not. I think I'm close, but I'm not. And um, she said that she would not go out with me because there was a difference in, in our approach to life in a pretty major way. She suggested that he go read the Gospel of John in the Bible, which he did in addition to reading First John. The phrase in particular, one phrase in particular, stood out to him. If we say that we have no sin, we call God a liar. And that's from First John chapter 1, verse 8. That caught my attention. I, I realized if, if there was a God, and I wasn't too convinced there was up until that point, if there was a God, 
I was not prepared to stand before him uh, and call him a liar and say that I was all right. And so reading through that, reading some of those things, um, it was that night that I realized, okay, I've seen evidence in people's lives of this Jesus person. I'm reading an account that says it is an eyewitness account. And I realized that I was broken. I tried to live life as best I could and could not in my own strength. That there was forgiveness, there was hope that this God was willing to direct my life in the way it ought to go. And so a number of things reading through that particular section of the Bible, um, it was that night that I said, okay, God, I've tried, I can't do it, you need to be the one that directs and leads my life. Um, and so it was that night I made the decision to put my trust in Christ. This whole belief thing that I didn't understand before, I understood now. It, it was dependence on Him. It wasn't just understanding facts, but it was I needed Him and I needed to depend on Him. When I asked what it felt like to go through this experience, he responded, uh, I mean, there, there were certainly emotions um, when I was reading these passages. When I was praying to God that night, there were a lot of tears. But um, there was no, you know, there was no bright light from heaven. There was no audible voice. There was no metaphysical experience necessary or mystical experience uh, that I could tangibly say, all right, I felt that or, or that happened. Um, I say that and then I say, when I read those words, you say you have no sin you call God a liar what I think I remember is that those words just hit home hard um, I, I say you know that kind of cut to my soul is the wording I use not that I felt it but that there they were I understood they were incredibly significant so Danny went from being involved in drugs and not understanding why anyone would bother with Christianity to giving his life to God and now perpetuating Christianity by working as a pastor in a church. So how can we understand this change? If we use the language of what I have introduced so far, we could say that Danny experienced some kind of a paradigm shift in which his understanding of how the world works and his place within it drastically changed. Now for our William James moment. So it's time to hear from our pal, William James. He is relevant here because a portion of his lectures involve conversion. It is important to note that he argues that the origin of an experience does not determine its significance. That is to say that the origin of an experience does not have to discredit its value. So even if you could explain away the case of the experience to make it seem more natural, what matters is that the experience had an effect on the person, perhaps because of whatever stories or frameworks they're using. James suggests that as we go about our lives, we adhere to different systems or frameworks according to the goals and desires that we have. He says, As life goes on, there is a constant change of our interests, and a consequent change of place in our systems of ideas, from more central to more peripheral, and from more peripheral to more central parts of consciousness. The shift of a system becoming more central is connected with what James calls emotional excitement. Some things appear to be more hot to us, creating desire and will, or the centers of our dynamic energy. In contrast, 
we react to the cold things with indifference. Quote, now there may be a great oscillation in the emotional interest, and the hot places may shift before one almost as rapidly as the sparks that run through burnt paper. Then we have the wavering and divided self, or the focus of excitement and heat, the point of view from which the aim is taken, may come to lie permanently within a certain system, and then, if the change be a religious one, we call it a conversion, especially if it be by crisis or sudden. Oh, and here's another quote. <laughs> uh, quote, To say that a man is converted means, in these terms, that religious ideas previously peripheral in his consciousness now take a central place, and that religious aims form the habitual center of his energy. End quote. In other words, a conversion experience is an indication of an internal shift that involves a new understanding of the world, or a new story, and a new direction or orientation or posture towards life. Collections of ideas are reconfigured to fit within the new framework. This person now sees in terms of the religious story they know, and it helps them to notice different kinds of patterns, such as being aware of God's presence, for example, uh, just as someone who doesn't believe in God would not be geared towards having an experience like that. And the change that happened when I had put my trust in Christ um, was so significant. It, 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 it really was a full 180. It really changed every aspect of life. Um, where I had been quite uptight, angry, directionless now there was there was a calm there was a peace there was uh, purpose um, life made a lot more sense in knowing Christ and knowing the story of the, the Christian scriptures Danny learned a new story that helped him to see purpose in himself and arguably live a better life it is interesting that a change in perspective of the self and what's out there can give people hope and direction. The new story for Danny involves a trust or a yielding to a higher power, a God of particular qualities, and he is able to see God at work continually in both himself and in others around him. The initial evidence that led up to Danny's conversion, as he tells the story, are his experiences of failing to get his life cleaned up on his own strength, the people he got to know in church as he was looking for better friendships and the words of scripture that hit something inside of him, causing him to think about his own relationship with God. His old way of life wasn't working for him anymore, so he found a new story to live by. The stories or frameworks or whatever you want to call them are ways for us to make sense of things. They put the different pieces we experience into categories, make them meaningful in particular ways, and direct our attention towards seeing certain patterns. Losing my belief in the Tooth Fairy was pr pretty painless and mostly funny to me because I felt like I accomplished something in catching my dad in the act and figuring out the secret. But it also wasn't an essential aspect of my understanding of how the world works. My experience with Santa Claus was similar, but you've probably heard stories of kids who kept holding on to their belief in Santa despite the evidence and anecdotes that were presented to them. 
As we get older, I imagine that most of us become reconciled with the generally accepted belief that Santa is a feel-good story we tell for the sake of cultivating a sense of Christmas magic. But I wonder if there is still a part of us that wants our original belief to be validated. Like in all of those Christmas movies in which it turns out that Santa is real. And then, what about religion and these kinds of beliefs? Well, it feels like we can get stuck when we start thinking about our beliefs in a place where the same rules and reasons don't work anymore, or don't hold the same kind of weight. It can feel like the other person isn't able to hear the reasonable things that you're saying, and it can be frustrating to feel misunderstood, or to not understand why the other person isn't able to see your point of view. Just like Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy, I don't think these kinds of beliefs are cultivated apart from culture and context of the person experiencing them. Unlike the fairy tale creatures we learn about as kids, however, religious stories seem to have a bit more depth, reality, or literalness attributed to them, and people tend to take it a little bit more seriously. They're both stories, but some stories assume more importance or reality than others. So, to summarize, so far I've introduced the idea that we try to make sense of the chaos around us by using frameworks or stories, and that this process is ongoing. It involves our own perception and experience, as well as our culture and context. I've also drawn a bit of a connection between belief in God and belief in fiction to illustrate that as we learn to understand our world, different kinds of stories will provide different solutions. Fictional stories aren't meant to be literal in the sense that they don't claim to explain different phenomena directly or at all. Similarly, some Christians take the whole Bible to be literal, whereas others see it more as a mythic story. The stories teach us something, and many people would say that the Bible doesn't have to be historically or literally true to be meaningful. Another way to think of these frameworks, as I have alluded to, is as a game. In a game, there are rules, a way to play, and conventions that have particular meanings in the context of that game. For instance, exclaiming that it was Colonel Mustard in the dining room with the lead pipe while playing, say, Uno, has no significance or meaning. It has been useful to me to think of us all as playing different games as we try to make sense of our world. We use moves that have authority or weight in the games that we think we are playing as we discuss our ideas about the world with each other. And it can become shockingly evident when people are playing different games, when all of a sudden the reasons they think are well-placed and within the assumed rules no longer hold weight or meaning to the person they're talking with. It's as though one person is playing Uno when the other is playing Clue. The rules or the world of each game is incompatible with the other. As long as they think they're playing the same game, they will continue to be frustrated as their arguments continue to do nothing to the other's point of view. So you may be wondering how all of this connects to my original question about how do people reason about their experiences of God and about their faith. Well, I wanted to introduce these ideas about frameworks and stories as a tool for navigating through the ways that people talk about their experiences. Among other factors, my participants, along with everyone else, uh, come from various backgrounds and offer their own lenses and assumptions. An important part of understanding the reasons we give is understanding what games we're playing or what systems of thought we are operating within. Using this framework tool can also be helpful as we try to understand people who think differently than us, 
because it helps to make sense of why we don't always see eye to eye with others, especially in religious or political contexts. As an example, many of my interviewees talk about their call story or what led them to decide to pursue ministry in a way that only makes sense in a religious context. Often, these are experiences that are strange and difficult to describe, but religious circles have language to refer to these somewhat ineffable experiences. But the meaning would be lost if you tried to understand it from a different context. For instance... And then in my second year of study, I received my call to ministry. And it was actually at um, Camp Wildwood. And I was there as part of a worship team um, to lead a men's retreat. And the speaker there spoke, and I just really felt like what some would call um, the tap on the shoulder, so to speak. A tap on the shoulder. I asked him to explain further. Yeah, I guess I would say it was um, sort of a, a warm feeling, if that makes sense. Um, and maybe, yeah, like a, sort of a, just a, a warm feeling. Like I think of, um, is it John or Charles Wesley that, you know, like he talks about like my heart was warmed. <laughs> and it's sort of like the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus and they don't yet recognize Jesus, but their heart is warmed. I mean, I recognize Jesus, but um, yeah, it was really um, just that sort of overwhelming um, sense, feeling that this is absolutely the direction I need to go, and it, it couldn't be any other way. I wouldn't find fulfillment any other way. That was the, fe- the kind of feeling, um, physical and emotional, that I was experiencing. My heart was warmed. It was uh, John Wesley, by the way. So both of these phrases are confusing because they do not refer to literal events in the same way as we typically talk about our experiences. They still mean something, but it's because of a different kind of game. People using different frameworks would use this experience as evidence or reason for different responses. The Christian pursues the calling into ministry, whereas people outside of church might think they should seek psychiatric help because they have no other way to understand hearing voices or feeling strange sensations. So when we think about the debates between science and religion, we should notice that each side of the debate is playing a different game. For science, convincing arguments are based on evidence that is the result of studies using particular prescribed methods of obtaining that evidence, i.e. the scientific method. And there is a lot of emphasis on the procedure that lays out the inferences made in the course of a study. Someone who trusts in science and plays this kind of game will accept its terms and believe the truths it presents. They may say, the scientists have done tests and based on trends and on the accepted theories, etc., they estimate that the world is this many years old. Evidence means a particular kind of thing when you play the science game. Religion, on the other hand, is a different game. Now for some brief and explicit philosophy with a guy named uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Quote, Suppose someone were a believer and said, I believe in a last judgment. And I said, Well, I'm not so sure. Possibly. You would say that there is an enormous gulf between us. If he said... There is a German aeroplane overhead. And I said, Possibly, I'm not so sure. 
you'd say we were fairly near. End quote. The phrase, although using the same terms in each instance, takes on a different meaning within each context. I am not so sure is an expression of disbelief in response to a last judgment, whereas in the second example, it is an expression of uncertainty as to whether or not there is a plane in the sky. The religious person would think about the first example about judgment in a different way than the second because it fits into a particular game, a particular framework for understanding the chaos. And another example. Quote, If I even vaguely remember what I was taught about God, I might say, Whatever believing in God may be, it can't be believing in something we can test or find means of testing. You might say, this is nonsense, because people say they believe on evidence or say they believe on religious experiences. I would say, the mere fact that someone says they believe on evidence doesn't tell me enough for me to be able to say now whether I can say of a sentence, God exists, that your evidence is unsatisfactory or insufficient. End quote. The kind of quote-unquote evidence that counts in a religious game is different than in science. And it even seems to differ based on individual differences. Both science and religion, broadly speaking, are frameworks that look for patterns for evidence, but they use different techniques. Hence, what is understood as convincing is different in each game. Some people emphasize the logical structure of their arguments, the inferences seemingly self-evident, and they try to create a closed system without any gaps. There are methods other than scientific evidence that can convince us. Science is just one tool that people use to give reasons, and a religious framework is another. James talks about science as focusing on the universal, whereas religion is more concerned with the particular. Science comes up with these theories to understand repetitious phenomena, but religion seeks to understand individual experiences that can then likely be generalized. Science is attractive to us because we like to think that we are logically minded and reasonable, in a certain sense of that word, and we also like to think that we're systematic because we like closed systems in which everything works out and fits into the theory. But we're not robots, we're humans, and I think we partake in many games beyond the scientific one as we navigate the chaos of our world. And so, maybe God isn't something that can be reasoned about in the way that scientific facts are reasoned about. The way people use evidence to ground their beliefs in God is different. Well, thanks for listening. Next, I'll be talking about how our frameworks influence the ways that we see the world. Until next time, see you later.